0: Hello, my rebels. A heart to heart conversation with one of our favorite American observers, Ben Weingarten. We're going to talk about who will be president Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and maybe even RFK Jr. We're going to go through the state of each of their campaigns and the big question what will they not do to stop Donald Trump? That's today's show. But first, let me invite you to become a Member of what we call Rebel News Plus. That's the video version of this podcast. Just go to RebelNewsPlus.com, click subscribe, eight bucks a month. We need that to pay the bills around here because you know we don't get any money from Trudeau or from YouTube. It's just you and me. And if you like what we do, please chip in. That's RebelNewsPlus.com. All right, here's today's podcast. Tonight we go deep in the state of American presidential politics. Our guest, Ben Weingarten. he's one of the best. It's February fifteenth, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Shame on you, you censorious Twenty twenty four is a momentous year for Canada already. Justin Trudeau is in free fall. You know, I compared the latest polling on Trudeau in Canada, obviously, with the latest polling for Donald Trump in Canada. Let me say that again. Trump's approval rating in Canada is 33%, whereas Justin Trudeau in the latest polls, and you choose it, whether it's Nanos or um, David Coletto's Abacus, he's at about 23%. Donald Trump is more popular or has more approval in in Canada, left wing stand than Justin Trudeau himself. So many things going on, the rebuke by the courts of Trudeau's invocation of martial law, just tremendous. I think Canada is rising up, talking about things we've never talked before. For example, the successful motion in the House of Commons to revise immigration numbers. I wouldn't have imagined that. That said, Canada is a smallish country in a big, big world. And of course while it's deeply important to us that we rid ourselves of justin trudeau at the earliest convenience and by the way he legally could stretch out his term as late as 2026 god forbid i think it's fair to say and i don't think it's disrespecting of our country to say that what happens in november 2024 in the united states of america and i refer specifically to the presidential election what happens in the presidential election in the united states of america This November will have a greater impact on Canada than perhaps anything that will be decided within our own borders. And if that goes for Canada, it goes doubly for other places in the world like Russia, Ukraine, Iran, China, Taiwan, you name it. People always say this is the most important election in a generation. They always say it, but is it actually ever as true as it is now? Well, that's one of the many things we're going to talk about with our next guest, our favorite america which makes sense that he is an American, is our friend Ben o. Weingarten, who joins us now L.Y.S. Skype. Ben, great to see you again.
1: Always a pleasure, Ezra.
0: You know, there's so many things that I'd like to talk to you about. Um, Joe Biden, who is falling apart in front of our eyes in terms of his cognitive abilities. We're starting to see pro-Democrat, Newspapers like the New York Times openly muse about if the guy's lost his marbles. Do you think the Democratic Party will run Joe Biden as their candidate this year, or do you think they will, at the last moment, switch him out for another candidate? I know the primary season is pretty much over, but there are ways you can replace a candidate on the ballot. Is that kind of hail mary pass on the table for the democrats or am i overstating the problems they have with joe biden is he actually a winner
1: well first i think it's remarkable this special counsel report investigation into joe biden's mishandling of classified documents both as a senator and as vice president and that has spurred this question of joe biden's obvious declining faculties which you didn't need uh federal prosecutor to tell the American people what they can see with their own eyes, starting from the basement campaign he ran in 2020 to today. But what's amazing in that report is that it notes that Joe Biden lacked quote unquote recall and essentially had faulty faculties dating back to 2017. Mm -hmm. So this is someone who's been in decline for a very long time. I think to your point, the suggestion in sort of establishment Outlets, including Politico, which detailed here the various ways in which Democrats could jettison Joe Biden. When you add on the impeachment inquiry and what it reveals about the Biden family's international influence peddling scheme, add on how much age in the minds of American voters, and this is across the board, that Democrats and Republicans alike view his age and the mental decline, of course, as a proxy for that age, as being a massive problem for him. And then you factor in as you know, had and alluded to, not all only these articles talking about the various machinations Democrats can engage in to in smoke-filled rooms, sideline him, and pick someone else to be the figurehead for the party, but add on for months now, the rumblings that there are issues with Joe Biden's campaign, he's not a compelling candidate, and this is from putative allies on the Democrat side, questions about how strong a candidate he can be, plus the polls showing Donald Trump ahead of him nationally, and in most of the swing states as well, by substantial margins, that is beyond the margins of errors, certainly. And all of that points to a very compelling case for jettisoning him. Now, whether or not Democrats will go through with that, we shall see. It certainly seems to me that if I was in the Democrat party, and the Democrat party is very disciplined and all about following the party line, ultimately, I would want Joe Biden to be the nominee through the convention. And then if you look to the Democrat rules, they can essentially, if for health reasons or otherwise he steps aside, essentially the party bosses can pick who the nominee is. That would allow them to control the process. It would allow them to potentially sidestep uh, or work around issues around Kamala Harris being the next in line. So I've long been on record of saying, I believe they will jettison Joe. And I think everything that we've seen in recent days suggests that is the case. But there are very smart analysts who argue the complete opposite of this and that Joe Biden is the man they're gonna drag to the finish line. I think if nothing else, the special counsel report that has dropped and the questions about the president's mental acuity, would you get a bit obvious for Odyssey for years now? If nothing else, it provides Democrats optionality if they really believe that he's gonna be a loser in 2024.
0: Yeah. You know, uh, we alluded to some of the matters in that special prosecutor's report. He couldn't remember when he was vice president. Um, Something very personal, he couldn't remember when his son passed away. Now, when that was revealed, Joe Biden leaned into and said, I am outraged that they would talk about my dear son like that. I miss him and I love him. And that was his attempt to take the energy and the emotion of, holy cow, you forgot that, into they're attacking me personally. And I... I don't know if it worked. I think it, if anything brought more attention to it, like this guy couldn't remember the most basic things when he was a senator, things like that. But I, I don't think we needed an official person to say that. I think we've all, like every single human, even if you're a Democrat, has seen enough clips of him just saying inexplicable, unintelligible things. And and it's going to get, uh, you know, I, I think it's going to accelerate He's going to have these Biden moments all the time. Here's a question I have for you. Who do you think, and I I think it's going to happen. I think they're going to get him to the nomination, celebrate him, and then in sorrow, more than anything, he he will probably announce, or maybe Dr. Jill Biden will probably announce that he's stepping aside for family reasons or health reasons. It'll be very loving, and they'll have lots of kudos and tributes to the man And it'll be almost like a living funeral for him. Everyone will send in accolades. And then they, and and it's so important. I mean, you know the rules better than me, but it is not a primary process after that. It is not a let's go and talk to the people. It's what the bosses say. So they don't have to go through, well, who came in second. They don't have to go to the vice president. I think the only person more unlikable, I mean, Joe Biden actually has a likability. You can disagree with him. You can see he's falling apart, but he's got a likability. Who do you think they would pick as his hand-picked successor if we're going down that road? And I know this is speculative, but I think it's worth speculating. Who do you think would be the savior of the party? I've got a name, but I want to hear who you think first.
1: Well, and also let's note, by the way, there could be a real fight here between the Biden family and the party itself, because let's not forget that Hunter Biden is facing prosecution. So what happens with the, if if you take Joe Biden out of the equation, then— What happens to potentially pardoning Hunter Biden? There are a lot of different monkey wrenches like that that could be thrown into this mix. Set all that aside to your main question, who would be the replacements? Obviously, you've had Gavin Newsom positioning himself. Uh, Of course, he hosted Xi Jinping. I had also visited China as well. So I guess that's sort of an attempt to burnish credentials as I'm a kind of global leader as governor of California, and he's curried favor with Joe Biden. Joe Biden spoke in favorably of him. Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, has also tried to position herself accordingly. In particular, it seems that she's trying to elevate herself as uh, trying to maintain the Democrat vote when Joe Biden is potentially struggling, particularly with Palestinian Arab voters in Dearborn. This is usually significant because the Michigan margins could be very tight. If Michigan falls, to Donald Trump that could cost Democrats the presidency. To me, I've long felt that the secret weapon for the Democrats is Michelle Obama. And I suspect that might be your pick as well. One of the reasons that I say Michelle Obama would make sense is that this allows you to skirt the Kamala Harris problem. The Kamala Harris problem being how can the party sideline a black woman uh, when she was picked you know, in part Uh, on the identitarian kind of credentials, and you're going to enrage potentially your base if you then pick a Gavin Newsom over a Kamala Harris or a Gretchen Whitmer over a Kamala Harris. Michelle Obama allows you to sidestep that. And despite the fact that I think she is a completely non-compelling figure and that I think she would be a disastrous president of the United States, I could very well see the Democrat Party turning to her. I also believe and I think this is being borne out beyond the fact that if you look to virtually every single person in a prominent position in the Biden administration, that it is all holdovers from the Obama-Biden administration, that this is essentially Barack Obama's third term in the way of policy. And that illustrates, that reflects the fact that this is Barack Obama's Democrat party. It used to be that the Clintons controlled the Democrat party. It is now an Obama-controlled Democrat party. So, who better for Barack Obama to pick than Michelle Obama for that position? Obviously, we're engaging in speculation, like you said. There are any of a number of other figures who are going to be vying hard for the seat to the extent it does become open. But to me, that would be the one that I would look to as potentially, uh, I, I guess, no pun intended, but a, a potential Trump card.
0: Wow. That was not the name I had in mind. Whenever I've seen that name floated, I've, I've scoffed. I thought, come on, it's too much. I mean, Hillary Clinton, the nominal spouse of Bill Clinton, ran, but in fairness, she was her own political figure for a very long time. Um, she served as Secretary of State, for example, so she she had a real political track record of her own. Michelle Obama was vocal as a First Lady and ubiquitous in her own way, but she clearly is nothing but an appendage to the Obama movement and to Barack Obama himself. But but that said, um, having a black woman as the candidate really pulls hard at the identitarian aspect of things. And in some ways, I don't think she would be vetted because everyone would assume, oh, yeah, we know her. We're very familiar with her. We've known her for uh, 20 years and we're not afraid of her and even if you reveal things about her we already have an opinion about her so in a way um she she actually has not been vetted but she will not she will not be vetted and i think people just like many people look back to trump's time in office as a better time in america policy wise i think people look back to barack obama even though policy wise he was a disaster there was a calmness there it, uh, it, at least the feeling that Barack Obama always gave was soothing. Well, I mean, listen, he could be he could be quarrelsome too. But I think there would be some sentimentality, some nostalgia. Um, I think Michelle Obama would would be a difficult candidate to succeed. I I was gonna I was gonna say Gavin Newsom. It's so obvious to me that he's setting himself up for that role. Uh he really is a Justin Trudeau doppelganger in so many ways. Um but I think you're right. I think Michelle Obama would smoke Gavin Newsom. Anyway, we're talking in the realm of speculation, but I think you have to speculate when you're, you're figurehead right now. I mean, he could literally pass away and, and no one would be shocked. Let's talk about the other side of the ticket, the other, uh, about Donald Trump, the other side of the ballot. Um, I think Trump is one year younger than Joe Biden, but he feels 15 or 20 years younger, I think. Um, they've done everything to him other than jail him. I mean, they're prosecuting him criminally. they are civil lawsuits against him. But he just, you know, he's like that old child story, Weeble, Weeble's wobbled, but they don't fall down. You push him and he comes right back up. In fact, every time he's pushed, his fan base is confirmed that the world is allied against him and it's tough to deny it. Uh, I actually think that the only thing that would stop Trump God forbid, may it never happen. I hate to even say the words, may it not come true. But I've got to say it. It's on my mind. I think an assassination attempt is really the only thing that would stop him from being on the ballot and being a real contender. And Actually, I'm a little bit worried about that. There's been four presidential assassinations in America so far. The stakes have never been higher. The deep state, including lots of FBI, CIA, and and, uh, international intrigue types, hate Trump because of what he would have, the changes he would make in the world. I actually think the only thing that could stop Trump Trump is a bullet.
1: Well, you have rhetoric from the left, from our political establishment in America, constantly talking about how Donald Trump is Hitler reincarnated and that he will bring about tyranny and authoritarianism. So the response, by the way, is let's impose tyranny and authoritarianism so we can destroy our political foes. Set that aside. The rhetoric is certainly subjective, suggestive of a willingness to take the most extreme measures. Let's not forget that in 2020, beyond the draconian lockdowns that were imposed, which obviously had a political aim, you also had essentially leftist mobs rioting throughout the country, and so there was almost there was almost an assumption. If you recall back around election day, you had businesses in places like Washington D.C. boarding up their windows with the expectation there would be street violence, uh, you know, fires in the streets essentially to the extent the American, pe- American people chose wrong. So there was a threat there essentially of mob justice trying to impose a political end at the threat of a gun or a billy club. And look, all you have to, it, the, the thing sort of speaks for itself in the way of the rhetoric that exists around Donald Trump and how existential a threat he is to the country. If you listen to our betters, our elites, and this is accurate, of course, globally as well. So you can't, sadly and disturbingly, you can't put anything past a rabid political opposition like this. I pray nothing comes to pass in the way of bodily harm uh, attempts, etc. Setting that aside, I don't think there's any way he does not win this nomination uh, going away. It, the. the the, the primary process is essentially over at this point. I'm not sure what the theory of the case was, if the belief was there would be some black swan event, that uh, some superseding indictment would come down, or some revelation would come in one of the myriad cases against him that was finally going to be the crushing blow that turned the Republican pace against Donald Trump. To your point, the more we see these legal persecution attempts for what they are, and This is exposed every single day in many of these cases. For example, the so-called January 6th case out of D.C., where the prosecutor there, Jack Smith, is trying to rush the case to the Supreme Court, rush the case to the Supreme Court on an emergency basis. Why? He can't articulate why there's an emergency for skipping the normal appellate process. And this is a case, by the way, on the weightiest matters of what authorities does the president have, checks and balances, the interplay between what courts can do, where the voters are, what a president can do, et cetera. You look at where the J6 case is, and the reason that Jack Smith, the prosecutor there, can't articulate the emergency is because the emergency is purely a political one. It's the Biden Justice Department really wants Donald Trump convicted of a crime before the presidential election, before the general election, but he can't say it in court. And as consequently, I think they're going to get smacked down in terms of their effort to make the Supreme Court rush through dealing with just a part of that case, the immunity aspect of it, argument that's been raised by Trump's side. So what does it show? It shows that the American people, tens of millions of Americans, see the attempts to lock Donald Trump up, to try and take away his assets, his business, and destroy him and bankrupt him financially, to smear him and target him mercilessly with concocted, Uh, story, scandal after concocted scandal. Um, The American people see it for what it is. It's a witch hunt, but it's not only a witch hunt against Trump, it's a witch hunt against them as a vessel for the beliefs of tens of millions of voters and essentially a middle finger to the regime that lords over us. So that is why I believe Donald Trump gets stronger with every last attempt to try and take him down. But it's incredibly disturbing and frightening the rhetoric that you see, because the rhetoric suggests if this is the worst person on earth, what wouldn't you, what would you be willing to do to stop that worst person on earth from winning? And they did an awful lot last time around in 2020. We can go back to Russiagate and an even pre-Russiagate efforts to go after Donald Trump. They've shown they'll stop at nothing. No norm, no law, no principle, will serve as a guardrail in stopping Trump. They are so zealous and rabid and hateful towards Trump, but again, as a proxy towards tens of millions of Americans who disagree with their policies and to some extent just disagree culturally with them at the end of the day. And so consequently, that puts us in a very perilous place going into 2024. Yeah,
0: You know, um, there's that thought experiment. If you could go back in time, would you kill Hitler if you could? Would you kill him when he was uh, elected, not elected, would you kill him when he was just a street protester? and then there's the terrifying ethical thought experiment would you kill baby hitler to stop the world and i and and i'm not going to get into that that interesting and and quirky question other than a lot of people would say you must do literally anything to save millions of lives and if if trump is hitler if trump is going to cause i mean people are saying that he's going to cause third world war would, this is that thought experiment in real time. And even if only one in a million people says, yes, I believe that Trump is the new Hitler, yes, I believe he's gonna put us in a nuclear war or something, and yes, I have the means and the opportunity to to, to attack him, all you need is one in a million people. Or, I mean, what do you think the stakes are for the People's Republic of China? What do you think the stakes are for Vladimir Putin? All these countries around for Iran. All these countries who have had their agendas advanced under Joe Biden, they have a, an interest in keeping America weak and distracted and and listless. Uh, there were no October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel during Trump's uh, term. There were no invasions of Ukraine during Trump's term. There was before and after. So it's not just the domestic rivals. I think there are serious bad actors around the world who would rather have a weak and declining uh, America than a... Uh, renovated and revived America, I think it's the worst of all worlds. I, I'm, I'm afraid of it. Um, I want to ask you about a possible third name on the ballot, RFK Jr., Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who I really find interesting, and I, I know there's certain things about which uh, he is, you know, I, I would say, a progressive. I don't know if I'd use the word a hard leftist, but I find that on many other things, he's surprisingly open-minded, I think he cares a little more about civil liberties than your average Democrat. I think in terms of foreign policy, he's a little bit more sane than your average Democrat, even cares about the the border crisis. Uh, I I don't know if he would be my first pick. Being a Canadian, I actually don't get a pick. But I I think that he is an impressive third-party candidate who may well do better than any third-party candidate since Ross Perot. And Ross Perot, for those who remember from a generation ago, in many ways handed the presidency to Bill Clinton because he stripped off just enough votes of sort of cranky um, free-market libertarian anti-politicians. I think he really paved the way for the Democrats to win. Do you think RFK Jr. will be on the ballot? Do you think he'll siphon votes more from one party or the other? And what do you make of the fact that just the other day it was revealed um, by Judicial Watch, a great civil liberties charity in America, that uh, the U.S. Department of uh, Homeland Security um, re- ruled that they would not provide him with Secret Service protection. I mean, it's it's almost too on the nose. What do you make of RFK Jr.? Is he a threat, and is he at risk?
1: One well, your last point, it's just asinine that he wouldn't get the protection that he deserves here. And it actually plays into kind of a theme of his, which goes back decades, In the Kennedy family, which is the skepticism of the deep state and its intentions and its operations, RFK Jr. stands essentially as an avatar for those Americans, and many of them are Trump voters, who reject the establishment, reject what authorities say is settled science and the truth. To your point, my measure of him is that He's a leftist in the classical sense, but not one who wants to throw you in a gulag. He'll actually have an open conversation with you. Like you said, he is a defender of free speech, a defender essentially of the little guy against established business interests, against the administrative state, again, against the deep state. And obviously, the contrarian line on the Chinese coronavirus taps into a a huge... A groundswell of feeling among Americans who rejected the lockdowns and the hysteria and the evisceration of our rights, arbitrarily suspended for uh, long periods without any sort of explanation, oftentimes anti scientifically. So you put all that together and then you throw on top of it the dissatisfaction with Americans uh, to some extent with both uh, the Republican and Democrat assumed nominees and sort of RFK Jr's sort of demeanor um you know the symbolic more than the substantive aspects of RFK Jr the kind of breath of fresh air that he appears to to put out there and i think all those things make for a compelling third party candidate and to your point i do think that he may well have a i'm not sure if it's going to be a decisive role that he has in terms of siphoning off votes but certainly uh, more than i think a marginal one And the question is going to be, in what states does RFK Jr. move the needle, and would he peel off more Trump voters or Biden voters? To the extent Donald Trump, and he sort of has to some extent, embraces RFK Jr. to any degree, whereas Joe Biden clearly loathes RFK Jr., and the Democrat Party completely rejects RFK Jr. By the way, we saw that when he testified before the House Weaponization Committee, and the Democrats all savaged him. To the extent you have uh, more than a detente, but even a warmth between the Trump camp and the RFK Jr. camp, does that impact where the votes are siphoned off from to some extent? Hmm. It's hard to say at this point. It's hard to say which candidate he might hurt more ultimately, but I do think he is going to play a pretty substantial role coming down the stretch in this election. And whether or not it's bigger than Perot, I think, is is yet to be seen Uh, But it's certainly probably a more meaningful and significant third party candidate than we've had in some time in America.
0: And I have a warmth towards him because uh, some of his policies, like he was a he was the original skeptic on on COVID-19 and the uh, proposed political remedies to it. But along the way, I just found him a compelling person. He's got that Kennedy charisma. He's in his 70s, too. I think he's a little bit younger than Trump. And Biden, but he comes across as a man a quarter century younger than he is. I mean, I saw him on Joe Rogan a few months back talking about his workout re- regime, and um, I don't think it's just a political photo op. I mean, he works out every day. Uh, here's a shot of him working out on Venice Beach. And and here's a, here's a clip of him handling a rattlesnake. Now, this tweet, I later discovered, was shown in reverse. He was actually letting a rattlesnake go as opposed to grabbing a rattlesnake. But still, would you handle a rattlesnake um, in sort of a it's cool, I love nature way? Here's him in the rattlesnake. Now, look, I know that neither working out nor handling rattlesnakes are important uh, criteria for selecting a president. But what it comes across as as vigorous, healthy, outdoorsy, a bit of a Teddy Roosevelt feeling. And if you're running against the cognitive decline candidate of the Democrats who can't remember where he is, this, this young-looking, young-spirited, vigorous Kennedy is very appealing. And I think uh, emotion is obviously part of a choice. I don't know. Call me a sucker. But I can't—of of the three men, I actually think RFK Jr. is the most likable. Trump is the toughest, but y- y- you're, you're always slightly on guard with Trump. I think RFK Jr. is probably the nicest man of the three. I, I mean, they say Joe Biden is nice. I think he's just nice because he's not even there anymore. What do you think of my love affair for RFK Jr., as, <laughs> or at least his aesthetics? Well,
1: I think, he, to your point, he gives off a— a vibe of being vigorous and much more youthful than he is. He sort of represents what the Democrat Party, to some extent, used to be and is not now. That is not a hard left Democrat Party, but I guess, to some extent, more of a left libertarian party. Although you can go back and you can find some of his quotes on sort of climate environmentalism, and those were disturbing, and he sort of tried to argue, well, here's what I really meant by that, and to some extent, I guess, recanted on them. Uh, but he certainly gives off uh, and conveys something that I think is sort of inherently compelling in the eyes of a voter. He comes off as a free thinker who's willing to truly engage on questions. And he's very sharp and very shrewd. He has that charisma, to your point. Uh, inter- and it's sort of interesting and amazing that he gives that off when you, know, you delve into his background and. His drug abuse and uh, womanizing and divorces and other things, which give a much more uh, negative kind of perspective about who he is in his personal life and might call into question his character. But as he looks as a candidate today and what he's conveyed, the message he puts forth, where he stood to your point, uh, not just on the COVIDianism, but also on social media censorship by proxy again, on the weaponization and hyper-politicization of the national security apparatus, people who might not otherwise be on his side, I think, feel uh, his positions resonate with them. And as you noted, is sort of what he gives off in terms of his personal traits, and what he conveys uh, makes for a compelling package. And that's why, again, I agree that he will have more of an outsized impact than most third-party candidates who are usually is, but maybe might play a spoiler in one or two states in a normal, quote-unquote, presidential election.
0: Well, it's going to be very interesting. Um, I think it's crazy that the Secretary of the Homeland Security Department personally signed the memo, like literally the boss, Mayorkas himself, signed the memo, refusing to provide him Secret Service protection. If any family in America needs uh, Secret Service protection, you would think it would be that one. It, it, it's... It just feels so punitive and personal and spiteful. Hey, I got one last question. I know we've got to let you go uh, fairly soon. Thank you for spending so much time with us. Um, I was riveted for a variety of reasons by Tucker Carlson's recent trip to Moscow where he interviewed Vladimir Putin, the Russian president. And I started to watch that interview, which was more than two hours long. And it was odd at first. And Tucker himself said he thought that, When he asked why did you invade ukraine he wasn't ready for a half-hour history lecture going back hundreds and hundreds of years and tucker said he wasn't used to that he thought it was putin trying to filibuster and in some ways it it was it was putin saying well you're going to have 100 million people watch this i'm going to tell them what i want them to hear not what you want to hear but i think in another way that's how putin is he doesn't have he doesn't follow the the rhythms of western style reporters uh there are no western style accountability you know, attack-oriented, gotcha-oriented reporters in Russia—they're—they're uh, they're more stenographical. They'll ask a question, and then they'll get a professorial speech. Um, I don't—I think that's honestly how Putin talks. If—if if you ask him a question, he'll answer for as long as he wants because he expects you to listen for as long as he wants. And yeah, that's just a comment on on Putin's mindset. I watched the whole interview, and without getting into any particular details. My first impression was I don't think that Joe Biden could handle a two-hour wide-ranging intellectual conversation like that, attentive. And it was Tucker who said, okay, we're done after two hours. Putin probably would have gone a third hour. Secondly, to compare the vigor of Putin with Western leaders, none of this is to say I I support Putin. I mean, he talked about justifying the invasion of another country. That was his main point. but I thought that was an interesting interview. I thought the reaction in the interview was just as interesting, how um, this, the State Department asked Facebook to throttle it, and indeed they did. Fewer than 150,000 people even saw it on Facebook, which is absurd. What do you make of that interview? What do you make of Tucker Carlson? What do you make of Vladimir Putin and that interview? I, I trust that you watched it. Just tell me what you thought about it, because it, it had my mind swimming for a day.
1: Well, first of all, note the irony that now you have the entire political establishment that doesn't want a U.S. commentator who they loathe interviewing Vladimir Putin, despite the fact that, of course, Western outlets have interviewed all manner of strongmen, strongmen, dictators historically, and despite the fact that many Democrats especially wanted the Russian reset with Vladimir Putin, hailed Vladimir Putin when he first rose to power, etc., and then turned on Russia really, or rather Putin during the Obama years and then with the creation of Gate, that turned Russia into the enemy par excellence for people who probably in many cases spent the 70s and 80s soft on communism and wanting to appease the Soviet Union. Set aside that hypocrisy that's always existed there with uh, the characterizations of Russia and Putin. To me, uh, to, I, I agree with your point about Putin sort of sought to lecture tucker carlson and by extension american conservatives and by extension america because that's what he does dictators uh authoritarians strong men they speak at way times for hours that's what, their the, what dictate people.
0: means like dictate is literally <laughs> they they speak it and it becomes the fact so it's not surprising that a dictator would dictate sorry i interrupted you but i was thinking of the term go ahead sure
1: and this is sort of a tactic. It's, I'm gonna set you Americans straight. Here's my narrative and vision for the world. To your point, it obviously draws a contrast of, this is someone steeped in his history, however ahistorical it is, and propaganda, and seemingly on top of his game, well in command of the narrative he wants to put forth. That said, one of the questions that I have coming out of it, and I'm sure analysts are gonna be parsing the interview, probably in native Russian over what the translation was like, is who was Putin's intended audience here? Was he trying to spin a narrative to capture we in the West? Was he going after American conservatives? Was he speaking to Ukrainians? Was he speaking to the Russian people and kind of defending the narrative that he thinks is sort of the nationalist narrative that appeals to Russians to the extent they were able to see it in Russia? I think that's kind of one interesting question. In other words, forget about the substance of what he said. Who is he targeting with the substance of what he said? Obviously, many have noted also that he kind of bristled at the questions about the Wall Street Journal reporter that has been detained and kudos to Tucker for pressing him on that. I'm sure well, he pressed him so many
0: times. Know. That was I think that was the I think Tucker went back at it four times.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine obviously any a Russian reporter being able to ask those questions. So that was certainly uh, an eye-opening part of the interview. But I think more broadly, there was sort of the Barbara Streisand effect here of the hysteria around, oh my God, Tucker has the gall to interview Vladimir Putin. He's a Vladimir Putin stooge for having the gall to actually ask the person basic questions, which by the way, provides intelligence. It provides insight into either how the person thinks or how they want you to think they're thinking about the world, what their perspective is or what they want to argue that their perspective is. That's all useful. That's all to the good. The fact that he was able to secure the interview is, is, a, is a good thing, quite frankly. Uh, and the hysteria about it, I think, increased the viewership immensely relative to what it probably otherwise would have been. So uh, a fascinating interview. I hope there are more such interview. Asking pointed questions is a good thing of these people because the fact of the matter is the world is comprised of mainly uh, liars, thieves, <laughs> crooks, and murderers when it comes to foreign powers, and you need to understand how they think, how they operate. That's how you gain insights, and that's how you ultimately defend your national interest in a very dangerous and chaotic world.
0: Yeah, I wish that Vladimir Zelensky would have an unscripted uh, interview with a citizen journalist from the West. There's a lot of questions I'd like him to answer. Well, Ben, listen, it's great to see you again. Thanks for spending so much time with us. Of course, uh, Rebel News is based in Canada. We love Canada. The of our work is in Canada, but we do care very much about what happens to our friends and allies in the United States. And as I said at the top of the show, what you will decide as a country this November will have an enormous impact on our country, too. Great to see you, Ben Weingarten. Keep up the fight.
1: Always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Ezra. Right.
0: Well, that's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom.